to the Howie Silbiger Show on the True Talk Radio Network. Get in on the conversation. Call 1-877-669-1292. And I'm Howie Silbiger. Welcome to the Howie Silbiger Show right here on the True Talk Radio Network. We are live on Super Bowl Sunday. You could give me a call at 1-877-669-1292. That's 1-877-669-1292 as we, uh, as we navigate some of the big issues happening, some of the things we really got to talk about uh, right here in Montreal and around the world. Once again, you could call in, the number to call, 1-877-669-1292. That's 1-877-669-1292. Now, I, I traditionally do a show on Super Bowl Sunday. It is a uh, it is a over twenty year tradition that the Howie Silberger Show airs on Super Bowl Sunday, and I'm pleased and happy to be here. And uh, I know I know that not everybody's a football fan, and uh, it is more than a pleasure and a privilege to uh, to be able to be here to talk to you on this on this uh, on this evening. There's a lot to talk about. A lot of stuff has been happening, and there's a lot going on, and a lot we have to talk about. For instance, let's talk about Bell. Now, I don't normally talk about my former employer. In fact, I try not to talk about my former employer because it just makes me angry. In the 11 years I worked for CJD Radio and Mix 96 and Virgin FM and Shom FM in Montreal, they treated me nicely. I'll be honest, I was treated fairly nicely. Not great, but fairly nicely. I was never given a promotion. I was never put into any position that uh, that would have advanced my career in any way whatsoever. And I was told very clearly that the reason I wasn't advanced in the in those stations was because I wear this little piece of cloth on my head. And that uh, kind of restricted me from being a a radio person in Montreal. A radio news person, for sure, I couldn't be. As a radio news director, Gord Sinclair told me, uh, what if an alien invasion happened on a Friday night and we needed all hands on deck? Would you come to work on Friday night? And when I said no, he said to me, well, well then why can't you just get permission from your rabbi to come and work on a Friday night? So if if you're a reporter, your, your your responsibility is not to your religion, it's to your job. And so if you can't do it, and you, and you can't make that decision that you can work on a Friday night, why can't you get permission from your rabbi? And I said to him, my rabbi doesn't usurp God. My rabbi's a servant to God. He's not. He's not God himself. This is a this is a rule from God. So I'm sorry, my rabbi doesn't trump God. And then he said, well, I guess you can't be part of my newsroom. And so the contentious relationship I had with the management at that radio station was uh, was was really contentious. Now, I know I used that word twice in a sentence that's really not grammatically correct, but uh, there's no other way to say it. Then, one day, 11 years after I started working at CJD Radio, Bell took over, about my ninth or 10th year there, Bell took over. And in my 11th year there, I got an email, and the email, wrote, the email was very clear. It said, Thank you so much for your years of service to our, to our station. But your services are no longer needed. Don't even come in. 
Your key card has been deactivated. Thank you very much. And that was it. My long career, my 11-year career at Bell Media. Before that, Astro Media. Before that, uh, Standard Broadcasting came to a crashing end. Now, it didn't really bother me all that much. It bothered me that they fired me by email. That bothered me. But it didn't bother me very much that uh, I was fired. I had a very successful radio show running on Radio Shalom at the time on 1650 AM. I had thousands and thousands of listeners. So CJAD, who never gave me the opportunity, was missing out because I had thousands of listeners on another station. Another, th another thing that comes to mind, which, which I found was quite funny, was that while I was working at CJD, the, they were following a story, a story that was happening at Concordia University. Now, the story was picked up from the suburban newspaper, and I was the lead reporter on the story. And I would be sitting in the newsroom at CJD, and they had my story open on their desks, my name on a byline, and I'd be sitting in their newsroom watching as they scrambled to try to find sources to confirm or deny the story that I had written. And nobody ever asked me. Nobody ever tried to hire me. Nobody ever tried to, to get me involved in, in the story at the radio station because of this little piece of cloth on my head called the yarmulke. So the blatant anti-Jewism that existed in the media and still exists in, in the world today it's, it's, it's not a shocking thing. Now, now, a lot of media people are going to look at this and say, Howie, you're overreacting, but I'm not. And I'll tell you why. Because Gord Sinclair told me that I couldn't be a reporter in the CJD newsroom because I couldn't work on Friday nights. I wasn't willing to compromise my religious values to take a job. That wasn't something I was willing to do. Now, I know a lot of people are willing to do that, but I'm not willing to compromise my religious values for anything. But the second way I know that my religion got in the way, and I'll tell you, it, it's, it's, it, it was extremely clear. I'm not going to name the guy who was there, but I was sitting in studio. I was sitting in studio. I was a technician. I was sitting in studio. My job was to record a commentary for the morning show in, in late afternoon. And so one of the veteran commentators, who is no longer with us, he, he, he passed away a few years ago, but one of the veteran commentators that was, that was big at the time that I was there came into studio and he sat down to record his commentary. And he looked over and he said, oh, I see you wear a yarmulke. And I said, yeah, I do. He said, we don't see very many yarmulkes in this business. I shrugged. What, what else am I supposed to do? I shrugged. Then he got up and he left the studio and absolutely refused to come in to record his commentary until I was replaced by another technician. Now I refused to leave, but I was forced out of the room and another technician was put in there for the five minutes to record this guy's commentary because he refused to allow a Jew to, to record his commentary. Now all this is my experience there, and I have a unique experience there. I'm sure not everybody has the same kind of experience that I have. But pretty much everybody I know who has worked at the station has been fired in pretty much the same way. Former program director of CJD, Steve Couch, told me once, and uh, he wrote it in his book, and uh, he's, he's, he's been pretty vocal about that. He said, it's not when you're going to get fired, it's if you're going to get fired when you're in radio. Everybody gets fired, everybody moves around, everybody moves on.
And, and you just accept your fate as it comes. It's a very unfortunate side effect of the business. But that's the way the radio business works. Now, Bell says that radio is not a not a successful business anymore. It's not a lucrative business anymore. It's a dying business. And I tend to disagree. Because what I'm doing right now, right now, and you're watching, is I'm hosting a radio show. Now, now I have a video attached to the show, so you may be watching on um, on social media. And you'll see my image and you'll see my you'll hear my voice. But in essence, I am hosting a talk show, a radio talk show. And you could hear it on True Talk Radio, on the live stream of True Talk Radio, the audio-only version, which has, by the way, tens of thousands of listeners a week. So people are still listening. They're just not listening in the same way they used to be listening. The podcast of this show has 100,000 subscribers. We are, we, are, we are really listened to by a lot, a lot of people. And so it is interesting to me that instead of evolving the media to something else, Bell is saying, look, you know, this media is dying, so we're not going to invest in it anymore. I'll tell you what. I am willing to purchase an AM radio station. So if somebody wants to sell me an AM radio station in Montreal, I'm willing to purchase it. I want to do Jewish radio again. I want a Jewish radio station to come up from the ashes of Radio Shalom. Now, Radio Shalom, the bitter old man who owned Radio Shalom, decided to to, to give it to the Christians, and that's fine. It was his prerogative. He owned it. He could do whatever he wants with it. But that doesn't mean that Jewish radio can't survive in the city. So if anybody out there who's listening to the sound of my voice wants to sell a radio station or wants to help me financially apply for a license from the CRTC, then just send me an email. Howie at truetalkradio.com and we could talk. Because I think it's important that we have a voice, and I think it's important that our voice is loud and clear. Now, I feel for the people who were laid off from uh, from from Bell Media again. Uh, the new people laid off from CTV, from Bell Media. Some of them are very f good friends. Some of them I don't like at all. And I, I, I really feel for them. And I want to say right now, they always have a spot here on True Talk Radio. Anybody who wants to do a show on True Talk Radio, feel free. Feel free to come and uh, to approach me. And we will be able to to talk and uh, and get you on the air here. Uh, I can't guarantee you money, but at least I could guarantee you a platform and an audience that I could do. But here we are, here we are, and I'm I'm hosting the show thirty years already, and it is a pleasure to host a show, and I don't think that we're doing anything on this show that is outdated, outmoded, or, or we're talking about current events. What could be outdated about current events? And we're taking your calls, of course, one 669 1292 That's one 669 1292 So uh, Joe Biden, uh, the other day, he had a press conference where he, uh, he referred to the president of Mexico not opening his borders to save Palestinians from Gaza in Egypt. And I'm not sure when Mexico took over Egypt and when, uh, when, when, when Sisi or Egypt took over Mexico, because he says that, uh, that President Sisi was the, was the president of Egypt. So I'm not, I'm not sure what was going on there. Uh, I'm just wondering how this man is still president of the United States. I guess if we look at the alternative, uh, Kamala Harris as president, that would be disastrous, but I, I can't imagine. I, I can't imagine that anybody's happy with Joe Biden as president. 
it just seems absurd that a doddering old man with Alzheimer's or some kind of dementia is the president of the, of the free world. But what is the options? Where are the options? So the next election, what are the options going to be? President Joe Biden running against President Donald Trump. Two doddering old men, one who's losing his mind and one who lost his mind a long time ago. It's not very good. If this is the cream of the crop of the United States, if this is the talk, the pinnacle of, of the political class of the United States, the United States is in extreme trouble. The United States is falling apart. This cannot be the cream of the crop. There's another saying that something else rises to the top, and this is pretty much where we're at with the United States politics. But unfortunately, the U.S. is a powerhouse. And unfortunately, when the U.S. has a weak leadership, we see all sorts of things happening. So let's look at the Gaza-Israel war for a minute. Terrorism was fairly quiet when Donald Trump was president of the United States because he made it fairly clear that if Israel is attacked in any way, that the United States would be backing Israel. And there was no question about that when he moved the, Israeli, when he moved the American consulate, the American embassy, to, to Jerusalem. He was saying, we stand behind Israel. Israel is our, is our country. It's our ally. And we're going to be there. We're going to be there to support Israel. Biden, on the other hand, has not really been there to support Israel. Biden has, has called for a ceasefire. And the interesting thing about the call for a ceasefire, and this is, this is the thing that just blows my mind, about all these people calling for a ceasefire, saying that Israel has gone too far in their war against Hamas, in their war in Gaza. They've gone too far, I'm told. They've killed too many people. It's, un, it's not proportional to the, to, the, um, to, to the attack that happened against Israel. This is what I'm told. And I keep wondering... And, and this is something that keeps going through my head. Keep wondering, what would be a proportional response? What is a proportional response to thousands of people busting through a border, going from town to town, murdering everybody in the town? What is a proportional response to taking 200 plus hostages and running back to their country with it? What is a proportional response for still holding, today, still holding over 130 of those hostages? What's proportional? Are we supposed to count our dead and kill exactly the same amount of money people on, the, on their side, not a person more? Are we supposed to count our dead and count how many women were raped and rape exactly the same amount of women on, on their side? What is proportional? That would be a proportional response. Kill as many babies, rape as many women, murder as many innocent people? Is that proportional? Because that would be the definition of proportional. Is that correct? Is that something that Israel should do? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But if you want proportional, that's proportional. If I give you a two-inch piece of block, then you should have, then I should take a two-inch piece of block for myself because that's proportional. But I don't think anybody really wants Israel to start counting the dead and counting the women that were raped and counting the minutes that they were raped because Hamas recorded the whole thing. So, so we know exactly how long each woman was raped. We know exactly how many people were killed. And do the same thing on the other side. I think, I think the human rights people would freak out, wouldn't they? Not that Israel would do that. Israel's humane society. They're, they're, they're civilized. 
Hamas, not so much. They're animals. And that's an insult to animals. Calling them animals is an insult to animals. And I apologize to animals for insulting them. They're monsters. So how do you treat monsters? You destroy monsters. You crush monsters. What the Western society doesn't understand and what the, what the Arabs don't want Western society to understand is that the old adage that is said in the Torah that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the actual way of life in the Middle East. That if you want to show that you are right, you have to show might. You have no choice. The strongest survive, everybody else dies. When people say that they want to kill you, when people are very clear that their goal is to commit a genocide against your people, to destroy your country, and to annihilate your people anywhere in the world, if this is the goal that is stated and is clearly stated, then you have to believe them because they are telling you the truth. The Arabs have always told the truth. They haven't lied at all. It's just everyone in the Western world, including the Israelis, by the way, everyone in the Western world wants to believe that there's some kind of humanity, that there's some kind of, of compassion, that there's some kind of heart, but it doesn't exist. You can't negotiate peace with a people whose starting point is we want to kill you. It's impossible to negotiate peace with people who want to kill you. Now, if you're entering into a peace negotiation with Hamas, which is why Israel hasn't entered into a peace negotiation with Hamas, and by the way, uh, just so you know, Israel offered a ceasefire, said release the hostages and you'll have a permanent ceasefire, but they offered a ceasefire, they even offered a deal for a ceasefire, and Hamas said no. I guess they have enough guns and bombs and weapons that they uh, they don't need to break. But when your enemy tells you they want to kill you, you can't negotiate that. There's nothing to negotiate. If you're going to sit down at the table with them, what's the starting point? I want to kill you? I don't want you to kill me? Is that where you start a negotiation? If you're, if you're sitting with an enemy and the enemy says, I'm going to punch you in the face, are you going to go into a room with the enemy and sit down and say, he's going to say, I'm punching you in the face right now. You say, please don't. Uh, I, I'm sorry. You have to start an even ground. And the even ground has to be the acceptance of the fact that you can't kill me. And maybe we should stop killing each other. This, this has to be the accepted even ground. Uh, another piece of the puzzle has to be that, uh, that you can't call for my destruction. Because if you're calling for my destruction, you're calling for violence against me. If you're calling for violence against me, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to people who hate me. I don't want to negotiate. I don't want, I don't want the country to negotiate with people who have vowed to kill them. We tried that once. It didn't work. Remember the Oslo Accords? The PLO's avowed idea, the whole concept behind the PLO was the destruction of the state of Israel. That was the concept behind the PLO. And in 1991, Yitzhak Shamir went to Madrid and sat down with the PLO and negotiated with Arafat, who had American blood and French blood and Jewish blood on his hands. And after Israel had vowed for years and years and years, we don't negotiate with terrorists, he sat down with terrorists to negotiate, and they came up with this concept after he left office and Yitzhak Rabin came in. They came up with the concept of the Oslo Accords, and they signed an agreement that won a Nobel Peace Prize for the Oslo Accords. Did that solve anything? It created the two-state solution everybody was talking about. 
But did it solve anything? Absolutely not. It led to more war, more bloodshed, more intifadas, more uprisings than ever before. More people died as a result of the Oslo Accords than died before the Oslo Accords. So negotiating peace with an insincere partner is not going to solve the problem. Arafat, after signing the Oslo Accords, went down to Johannesburg, South Africa, and he gave a speech in front of the great terrorist Nelson Mandela, who applauded him. He gave a speech saying that, yes, we signed a deal with Israel. We signed a deal with Israel, the Oslo Accords, but it's just a ploy. It's our first step for taking over all of Palestine, which is the river to the sea. Hamas was even more honest than, than the PLO. Much more honest. They wrote it into their charter. They said any negotiations, any, any kind of deals we make, it's all just a ploy. It's all just to appease the Americans and appease the people who we're, we're dealing with so that we could continue our intifada, continue our jihad, and get the entire country, get rid of Israel, annihilate Israel, and take over the country, and liberate all of Palestine, as they say. So, the American media is lying to you. The British media is lying to you. The world media is lying to you if they say that there is any possibility of a two-state solution. If it were up to the Israelis, the two-state solution would work right away. Israel already gave up land to Egypt, and the cold peace that Egypt and Israel have has lasted for years. Israel has a cold peace with Jordan, even though Jordan flares up every now and then, but Israel has a cold peace with Jordan. They haven't had a major war in, in years, in decades. So the cold peace understands that both sides understand that they can't kill each other anymore, and working as mutual cooperation, working together, they can make more money and make a ni much nicer living environment for their people than constant fighting battles and wars. Jordan and Israel have more of trade than Israel has of any other country in the region. Why is that? Because they both believe in mutual, non-mutual respect, and not even in mutual existence, but they both believe that mutually they can make money. And money is the great equalizer when it comes to wars, when it comes to countries, when it comes to conflicts. So we are, we are living in a time period where you have a group of people who just want to be a disturb? They're, they're, they're created in 1964 to be a disturbance, and they continue to be a disturbance, and they continue to try to be a disturbance. Think about this for a second. If the Palestinians were in such bad shape in Israel and being so oppressed in Israel, there are millions of acres of Arab land surrounding Israel that could have opened up their doors, 22 Arab states that could have opened up their doors at any time, and said to the Arab residents of Israel, come, come, come to us. We will protect you. We will save you. They chose not to. Why? Well, quite simply, they saw what happened in Jordan, and they saw what happened in, in Tunisia when the Palestinians came, came as asylum seekers. An uprising in Jordan in the, in the late 70s, early 80s called Black September, where, uh, where they tried to overthrow the Jordanian government in eastern Palestine and take over Jordan to create a Palestinian state. And by the way, Jordan is a good section, a good portion of what the Mandate of Palestine was. 
It was given to uh, to the Hashemites by Winston Churchill as payback for the Hashemites' uh, friendliness to Britain during World War One and World War Two. Now, had had they succeeded in overthrowing the Hashemites, the yes, or Arafat would have become the president of Palestine. That would have been in Jordan. But what they did was they shut their borders, they threw out the media, and they killed 100,000 Palestinians. They didn't have a problem anymore. What happened in um, what happened in Tunisia? Same story. Arafat moved to Tunisia when, when he realized that he couldn't take over Jordan. They went over to Tunisia. And they were running their operation out of Tunisia until, tu until Tunis decided that they had too much of them too. The terror attacks and the... the uh, and then the, the calls for overthrowing the Tunisian government were too much for them, and they threw them out of there too. It seems like everywhere these people go, they get thrown out because they're not really a nation. They were created to be a disturbance. They were created to cause a disturbance. And that's the honest truth. So I want to look at history. That's the honest historical truth. And, and people will say, yo, you're Islamophobic. It's not, it's not that case. I, I'm, I'm history. I'm history. I'm pro-history. That's what I am. I am pro-history. I believe in history. I believe in understanding history. Now, you can call me, one 877 if you want to get in on the conversation. I'd be more than happy to talk to you, one 877 That's the number to call to get in on the Howie Silberger Show right here on the True Talk Radio Network. I, um, I do appreciate you, uh, you tuning in, and I'm, 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 I'm excited to take your calls if you want to call in, one 877 so here we are. We're at the, we're the case. We're, we're at the situation now where the where the hostages are still being held in Gaza, and the world has stopped demanding the release of the hostages. Everybody seemed to have forgotten that Jewish lives are being held hostage, and babies, still Jewish babies, are being held hostage, and nobody seems to care. All we hear about today is that Israel is going beyond what they should be going for in in their uh, in their actions towards Gaza. The world's always going to be anti-Israel. And we see it locally, too. So the Glamoration Committee, uh, you know, the stupid committee that was set up after they merged all these suburbs in, in Montreal, into Montreal, and then they unmerged all the suburbs into their own cities again in some cockamamie scheme to either save money or spend money. I'm not even sure what the, what the scheme was. It was dumb. Uh, but anyway, they created this council that oversees the uh, the municipalities. They oversee the 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 our main arteries and um and a bunch of other things. They have a lot of responsibilities. They have these meetings, and the leader of one of these meetings, the leader of these meetings, the agglomeration committee's meetings uh, in Montreal, was a guy named Alex Morris, Alexander Morris. Now, Alexander Morris was a um, was a a Gazette journalist. He, he worked for the Montreal Gazette for years before he got into politics. And, um, and he was never, he was never, um, was Alexander Morris? Is that his name? Yeah, Alex Morris. That's his name. Yeah. He was never, um, he was never a, a fan of Israel or a fan of the Jews. And what he did was he um, he allowed people to attack the mayor of Hampstead, who has stood steadfastly with the Israelis 
uh, throughout the entire time of this war. He allowed them to attack them continuously. And this is uh, this was horrible. And he was eventually removed from the agglomeration council. He was uh, he was he was taken out of there because uh, because he he allowed this, these these unbelievable attacks on the Jewish community. Now the mayor of Hampstead, Jeremy Levy, he uh, he is very vocal about supporting Israel. In fact, he has his he has his um, his flags flying at half mast in uh, in Hampstead until the hostages come home. Because he feels that somebody has to stand up for the hostage. And it's important that somebody cares about the hostage situation in Israel. So his flags are standing at half-mast in, in Hampstead, and Alexander Norris allowed him to be attacked at the Agglomeration Committee. And after a lot of um, a lot of complaining and a lot of uh, a lot of, uh, of fighting, he was finally removed. Alex Norris was finally removed as the leader of this agglomeration committee. Thank God, finally. But I remember years ago when he was the Gazette, he was the Gazette reporter. Uh, I was running an organization called Save All Jews Everywhere. I had founded it, and we were running this organization. We had a march against anti-Semitism in Canada. We marched from uh, Concordia University to McGill University. This was the early 90s um, to confront the KKK that was handing out the Klansman's newspaper. And Alex Norris was the, was the reporter that was covering that. And I remember the conversation I had with him. He called, and I was standing in the kitchen of my parents' house. And he called my parents' house and, uh, and wanted to interview me. And we, we did the interview over the phone. I was holding the phone in the kitchen of my parents' house. It was still a wired phone. And he was asking me these questions that were so anti-Israel. It was it was mind-blowing to me. I was in my 20s at the time. It was mind-blowing to me in my 20s. And I, I asked him, I stopped him in the middle of the interview, and I said to him, you really don't like Israel? And he says, no, I really don't. I said, okay, great. So as long as I know where its starting point is, I know where the ending point is. And uh, it was such a contentious interview. And then the article in the Gazette was so anti-Israel and so anti-me that... Uh, that I hated the guy from back then. So when he got when he got uh, elected into politics, into local politics, uh, it surprised me that the local population would elect somebody who doesn't like a segment of the population. Who elects people who are racist? I thought we were beyond that. I thought we lived in 2024, where, where racism was not accepted. But apparently it's accepted when it comes to racism against the Jews. Apparently it's accepted when it comes to hatred, Jew hatred. Nobody seems to care about Jew hatred. And that's the, uh, that's the honest truth. Nobody cares about Jew hatred. And Alex Norris is a Jew hater. And nobody cares. So there you go. Now, I'm going to say he's an alleged Jew hater. I, I can't prove that he's a Jew hater. So I'm going to say he's an alleged Jew hater. Uh, but he's definitely anti-Israel. That's that's 100%. And and I'm going to say that the anti-Israel people, who who stand and say you know from the river to the sea or allow Jews to be attacked, are are more than just advocates of of freedom of speech. 
They're advocates of hatred of Jews. And so as a politician, I believe that he is actively working against a segment of the population of Montreal, the Jewish segment. And I believe that uh, that, that could stem from his dislike of, that, of, of people who support Israel and the Jewish community that supports Israel. Just to clarify my statements in case somebody wants to take me out of context. One eight seven seven six six nine one two nine two is the number to call. One eight seven seven six six nine one two nine two. That's the number to call. To get in on the conversation here on the Howie Silberger Show. The idea that politicians don't like Israel and the politicians work against the best interest of some of the some of their constituents is not a novel idea. It's it's been around for a long time, and it doesn't surprise me at all. Even if a politician doesn't like Jews altogether, it doesn't surprise me at all. Jews have been the most hated people in the world for a very, very long time. Let's hope that changes sometime soon. I'm Howie Silberger. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you again uh, maybe tomorrow right here on the True Talk Radio Network. Have a great day.